Let me read Hebrews 7 and then pray. Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would receive this as it is, your word, superintended by your spirit for the sake of your people, that we would receive it with joy. We ask that you would give us understanding of your word, that we would understand who Melchizedek was, what his priesthood was about, and how he was a type of the Christ. Help us to have clarity in this. Help us to look more and more to your son as we study together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, three times we've been told that Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Three times in Hebrews we've been told that. I want you to look briefly at them with me. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 first. In Hebrews chapter 5, the apostle has been laying out for us the fact that Christ is a high priest. He is our true high priest. And he's been comparing Christ as our high priest with the Levitical priests, the priests under Moses, the priests that come from the family of Aaron. And as he is doing that, he tells us something about Christ as the high priest. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 5, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek or according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the first time we hear that mentioned, that Christ is not a priest according to the order of Levi, according to the Aaronic priesthood, according to, if you will, what came in the Mosaic Covenant, but Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We hear that again in verse 10 of chapter 5, look down there, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We hear it a third time in Hebrews 6 and verse 20. If you look down there, Hebrews 6 and verse 20. After we've been told we have a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner places behind the curtain, we hear this, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, to which we might want to ask the question, what in the world does that mean? He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
And it's to that question, him being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that the apostle now turns. If you remember in Hebrews 5.11, he was about to deal with the issue, but there he says, I have much to say about this issue, about Christ being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but it's, it's hard to explain. It's not hard to explain because theologically it's too much for you to wrap your minds around in that sense. It's hard to explain because you're lazy listeners. You've become dull of hearing. And so he goes on to give them a warning about their need to wake up and be attentive, obedient, faithful listeners. And after he says that, he goes on with some of his warning and admonition, and now he returns to exposition. He wants to come back to this question. Who's Melchizedek? What does it mean that Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? To answer that question, and I'm gonna begin answering that question today, but I'm not gonna finish answering that question today. To answer that question today, I wanna look at three descriptions of Melchizedek. So we're just gonna look at the first three verses in this. We're not gonna take on the entirety of what it means for Christ to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, nor all the implications, though we'll hit largely at the heart of it. So we're gonna look at three descriptions of Melchizedek today, and then we're gonna look at two implications that come from that. Now, the author here in Hebrews has his own implications he lays out later in Hebrews 7, particularly starting in verse 11 and going on, but I'm gonna pick up two other ones that are clearly implicated here. So first, Let's look at the three descriptions of Melchizedek. The first description, Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. So the first thing we need to understand about Melchizedek as we're looking at what does it mean for Christ to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek is that Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. Look at Hebrews 7 and verse 1 through the first part of verse 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. Now what is the scene that's being referred to here? We can see clearly what has some things that are being mentioned. He's a, the king of Salem. He's the priest of the Most High God. When Abraham returned from the slaughter of the kings, we learned two things that Melchizedek did for Abraham. He blessed him and he received a tithe from him. So Abraham gave him a tithe, he received that tithe. But we need to look more at the scene being referred to here, because most of us probably don't think much about Melchizedek. We probably don't think much about Melchizedek because Melchizedek doesn't come up much in the Old Testament, nor does he come up much in the New Testament other than here. But who is he, and what's this scene about? Well, look, if you will, with me at Genesis chapter 14 and look at verse 17. After his return, now his return is speaking of Abram, who we later know as Abraham. After his or Abraham's return from the defeat of Keterlomer, however you say his name, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Now what he's referring to here is the fact that Abraham had gone to war against four kings and, if you will, their armies. And he had gone to war against them because they had taken Lot. And so he was rescuing Lot and he defeated those four kings. And on his return from defeating those four kings, 
he comes to this point and notice this interesting statement in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he, that being Melchizedek, blessed him, that being Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now that's the last we hear of Melchizedek. So Abram goes and slaughters these four kings, conquers them, rescues Lot, and suddenly after that appears to him this man, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who blesses him, Abraham gives him a tithe, and then he's gone. End of the description of Melchizedek. We learn some things here, but we're left here with a lot of questions, aren't we? Now, I won't address them all now, but I will address some of them in a bit. I just want you to notice what's happening here in Genesis by way of the flow of the story. In Genesis 3.15, after the fall of man into sin, God promised he would send the seed of the woman who would conquer the seed of the serpent. Now, there was always going to be enmity between the woman and her offspring and the serpent and his offspring. In other words, there would always be enmity between the people of God and the people who are not of God, those who do not believe, unbelievers, in other words. There would always be enmity between them, and you see that enmity begin to play out throughout Genesis. As you see Cain, the seed of the serpent, kill Abel, the seed of the woman. As you continue to see that sort of opposition go through Genesis, you pick it up here. The seed of the serpent, represented by these four kings, are opposed and conquered by the seed of the woman, represented by Abraham. So we're anticipating there's gonna be constant war between God's people and those who reject the Lord. And we anticipate that that war will be finally won by the seed of the woman. Now we learn in Genesis 12 that the seed of the woman is coming through this man, Abram. God has covenanted with him. And in saving his nephew, Lot, he has just conquered four wicked kings. So we see here a picture of the seed of the woman, if you will, conquering the seed of the serpent. And then we have this mysterious priest of God, most high, appear. And it's mysterious because we don't really know much about where he comes from or where he went. This priest Melchizedek blesses Abram. And Abram receives this blessing and then tithes. He gives a tenth of the spoils of the war to him. Thus, Abram recognizes he's a legitimate priest of the Most High God. Now, a priest, just so we're clear, is a man. A priest is a man, a human being, who stands between other men and God. He represents those men to God. As we hear in Hebrews 5 and verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is the office of the priest of the Most High God, and Melchizedek holds this office because he's a priest. Now, Melchizedek was more than a priest of the Most High God. We learn something else about him. If you notice in Genesis 14 and verse 18, it said, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, now keep your hand there and turn back to Hebrews in chapter seven where hopefully you've kept your hand as well. 
And I want to look at this second description of Melchizedek. He's priest of Most High God, but he's more than the priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek is also the king of righteousness and of peace. So that's the second description of Melchizedek I want you to pick up. Not just he's priest of Most High God, that's true, but he's also the king of righteousness and peace. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 2 again after he says that Abram apportioned a tenth of everything. Look what it says. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So his name means king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. So Melchizedek is not only the priest of the Most High God who mysteriously appears to bless Abraham, but he is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. This references to him being a just king, a righteous king, a king with whom justice and righteousness goes forth. He is also the king of peace. Now that's fascinating because he's the king of Salem, which we later learn is a reference to Jerusalem. Jerusalem translates roughly as vision of peace. Now imagine from Jerusalem comes the king of righteousness and peace who is priest of the most high God. He is the king of peace, of shalom. In his kingdom all things are set right. They are set right because righteousness reigns there. Note the order. I'm gonna come back to this later, but note the order. Righteousness, then peace. Where the king of righteousness reigns, peace follows. Look at Jeremiah. Keep your hand in Hebrews 7. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23 as we get a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Of course, keep your hand, if you will, in Hebrews 7. Jeremiah 23, look at verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. You hear that? Salvation and peace are coming. Shalom is there. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now look at Jeremiah 33. There's much more to pick up here than I have time for. But Jeremiah 33, and look at verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, now notice this, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. This Davidic king, this king who is our righteousness, this righteous king will come and sit on David's throne forever. He will forever be king, and because he will reign righteously forever, peace will obtain there. Now notice, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices 
forever. And the point is, he's going to replace the Levitical priests and be a priest forever. But in this sense, ultimately, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Israel was looking forward to the day when this righteous branch would spring forth from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David, and sit on the throne of David forever and bring peace to the peoples. What's interesting, though, is a king can't also be a priest in the Old Testament generally. The Levites had the priesthood. Judah had the kings. This Messiah was coming from Judah, but he would also be a priest, both king and priest. And Melchizedek is spoken of in that same way. Melchizedek is spoken of as a priest and a king. Now this drives me to the third description of Melchizedek. Here's my third description. Not only was Melchizedek priest of the Most High God and king of righteousness and peace, but Melchizedek was a type of the Son of God. You hear that? I'm going to say it again. Melchizedek was a type of the Son of God. He was a picture, a representation. Christ was the substance, the antitype, the one in whom it is ultimately fulfilled. Melchizedek was a type of the Son of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3. He, Melchizedek, and this is an interesting text, but just look at it. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now notice this language. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. Notice that he observes what Genesis does not tell us. In other words, the first thing he's going to tell us is there's all kinds of information that Moses didn't tell us in Genesis. Moses never told us who Melchizedek's father or mother were. Moses didn't tell us the genealogy of Melchizedek. What's his line of descent? Didn't tell us. Moses didn't tell us about his birth nor his death. He doesn't tell us how long he lived. Those are interesting things for Moses to leave out. And he wants you to notice that the fact that Moses left them out was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit intended for Moses to leave those details out. It wasn't an error on Moses' part. It was that the Holy Spirit superintended that those things would not be recorded for a reason. It's odd because in the book of Genesis, it's arranged around 10 genealogies. Moses is quite interested in the book of Genesis to tell you who someone's father and mother is, isn't he? He's quite interested to give you a genealogy of a person in the book of Genesis, and he often is letting you know how long a person lived. So and so lived this many years. And after he did this, he lived this many more years, and then he died. You guys remember that formula? Moses is seeming nearly obsessive about that topic, and for a reason, because he's driving you to who the seed of the woman is, ultimately, who the Christ is. But with Melchizedek, this figure who comes in as a priest of the Most High God, to whom Abraham looks and tithes, he leaves out all that information. He doesn't tell you any of that. Why is that? Well, he gives you a reason, which I'll get to in a second, because he's resembling the Son of God. I'll get to it in a second. But notice what you know. Melchizedek does not receive his priestly office by virtue of being a son of a priest. That's how the Levitical priests received their priestly office. The reason you would have a genealogy among the Levites is because you have to know priesthood was passed from father to son. But you don't know who his father is, so you don't have anybody to 
pass the priesthood down to him like you would with the Levites. Further, you don't know anything about his death, so you have no one to whom he could have passed his priesthood. So it just seems to continue. It doesn't ever have an ending mentioned in Genesis. It doesn't have a beginning that's mentioned in Genesis, and it doesn't have an ending that's mentioned in Genesis. He just appears as priest of God Most High. He is this man who comes from Jerusalem as the king of righteousness and peace, who is priest of Most High God, who has no beginning and no end that's mentioned, who has not received his priesthood from anybody, but from God alone, directly. And his priesthood just seems to go on, never end. Second, notice that he tells us that Genesis intentionally left us this shadowy description of Melchizedek. Please hear what I said. Genesis, Moses, by the superintendent of the Holy Spirit, intentionally left us a shadowy description of Melchizedek so that Melchizedek could serve as a type of the son. Look at what it says at the end of verse three. But resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. That's an interesting statement because notice that order. It's not that the son of God resembles Melchizedek. It's that Melchizedek resembles the son of God. Now historically, Melchizedek appears before the Christ appears in history, in history. But Melchizedek is resembling what's to come in him because the son of God is eternal. It is not that the son of God is like Melchizedek. It is that Melchizedek was who he was to resemble. He was a type of the Son of God. Now, we get no other information about Melchizedek in the whole of the Old Testament. He just goes away. We get the scene in Genesis, and then Melchizedek is only mentioned one more time in the whole of the Old Testament, but not mentioned in a way that gives us any more information about him. He's mentioned once again in Psalm 110. So turn there, Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is in a chiastic structure. What that means is that the verses are laid out in such a manner that it drives you to the center of generally the chiastic structure, the center of it. The center of it is sort of the high point or what's being gone after here. The first three verses are used in parallel with the last three verses. So verses one through three with verses five through seven, leaving verse four at the center of the chiastic structure or the point of it. So I just want you to see, and we'll read verses 1 through 3 and 5 through 7 as these parallel texts, but notice what they say. The Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, by the way, both are translated here, Adonai in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so it says in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of the Septuagint, which is a couple hundred years before the apostles, Adonai says to Adonai. That's because that's what the Hebrews would have heard when they translated it because they never read Yahweh and vocalized it. Whenever they came to the word Yahweh, they said Adonai. So Adonai, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, this is the father saying to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He is setting him apart. David, this is a psalm of David, if you notice the superscript. David is speaking of the coming messianic son of David who would sit at God's right hand, who was himself God. And look what he goes on to say. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Which I actually think is better translated, I have begotten you, but I'm not going to get into why. Look down at verses 5 through 7 now. The Lord is at your right hand. You notice that parallel? He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In other words, there is this coming messianic Lord who is himself God. He's been set apart by the Father for this. He's coming to rule and reign righteously and to put all of his enemies to death. But notice what's stated in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This Messiah is coming who will sit on the Davidic throne and rule in righteousness. He'll be the king of righteousness and per Isaiah, he will also be the prince of peace. This king of righteousness and prince of peace is coming and this king, we are told in Psalm 110 verse four, will also be priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The father, David seems to be overhearing, the father speaking to the son in eternity past, vowing to him, covenanting with him, not only to give him a kingdom, but to make him priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God decreed that before the foundation of the world. He is like Melchizedek, is he not? As to his human nature, he has no father. As to his divine nature, he has no mother. As to his genealogy, he is from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of kings, not the tribe of Levi, the tribe of priests. Therefore, he has no genealogy that would give him the priesthood. It is an eternal priesthood. It is a priesthood that is greater than the priesthood of the Levites. It has no beginning and it has no end. Now there's more that could be said here. And the apostle is going to speak more about Melchizedek. And he's going to draw out several more implications with regard to him in verses 4 and following, which I won't get into this morning. I want to get to the implications, but before I do, I want you to see the point. The Holy Spirit superintended the sending of Melchizedek to Abraham, set him apart as a priest, the king of Jerusalem, whose name means king of righteousness, who comes from the city where he is the king of the city of peace. And he comes as priest of the Most High God to bless Abraham, who in that situation represents God's people. He was given by the Holy Spirit for this purpose, and lots of information was left out about him for this purpose. What is this purpose? That he might be a type of the Christ. That you might see as early as Genesis 14, the Christ coming to bless his people. That early. That you might get a picture of who he is and what he's like that early. Now I want to draw out two implications for us this morning. First, Christ has always been the scope of scripture. You know what that is like the scope of an investigation? When you have an investigation into something, you'll put parameters around it, and here's what I'm investigating. What I'm saying is Christ has always been the scope of Scripture. All of Scripture is driving you to him. It's about him. He is its point. The whole Scripture has always been pointing to him, and it finds its aim in him. Jesus understood this. Listen to what he says in Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, 
these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books, and the prophets. When he says the prophets, he means both the former and latter prophets. In other words, both what we call the historical books, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, etc., and what we mean by the prophetic books, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, etc., etc., the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The Psalms is the first book in the writings, the third section of the Jewish canon. In other words, he's referencing the whole of the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, that also the writings are going to pick up First and Second Chronicles. They're going to pick up Ruth and Esther and Lamentations and Daniel, etc. He's saying everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's come to fulfill the whole of the Old Testament scripture which has him as its scope. You can see that in a passage like Genesis 14. Melchizedek is just dropped in there out of nowhere and then is gone. And now we're told that he's there as a type of the Son of God and we're told that by the author of Hebrews. But listen to this. This is what's interesting. We would not really understand his role fully, Melchizedek's role fully, without the revelation of Christ, would we? We wouldn't. Melchizedek was given as a type of the Christ. The Old Testament, please hear me, cannot, the Old Testament cannot be properly understood apart from the revelation of Christ. Now someone will say, are you saying that the Old Testament was unclear prior to Christ? Is that what you're saying? To which I will answer, it was unclear in the sense that it was incomplete. It was unclear in the sense that it was incomplete. I was told this week earlier by a pastor that I'm a liberal for thinking that. He told a whole group of men who believe that, that that's the case. But listen, the Old Testament is clear and sufficient for the time in which it was revealed. But it was not a complete revelation. Think of it like this. If I gave you the first 10 chapters of a 15-chapter book, and the 11th through 15th chapters are the chapters where the climax, resolution, and conclusion come, would that make the first 10 chapters unclear? Well, in one sense, they would be clear, but the book would be incomplete, and you wouldn't be able to make sense of the first 10 chapters nearly as well as if you had the last five. You guys know what this is like when you read a book, and you're reading it, and you're reading it, and you're reading it, and you get to the climax and the resolution, and you suddenly realize, oh, that's what was going on back here. I get it. Well, folks, Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension, pouring out of the Spirit, etc., are the climax resolution and conclusion of scripture. It is when you get to Christ that you see the whole Old Testament for what it has been saying all along. It is not, please don't misunderstand me, it is not that the Old Testament was insufficiently clear for the people who lived in the redemptive era in which they only had those books. It was that they themselves knew there was more to come that was yet to be revealed that would bring them even greater clarity. And when he came, then the whole puzzle, if you will, came together. Christ, that's the first thing is Christ is the scope of scripture. And this passage of Melchizedek makes that abundantly clear. If you just read Genesis 14, 17 through 20 in isolation from what's happening in Hebrews, you wouldn't be quite sure ultimately what to do with Melchizedek. 
you wouldn't know fully who he was and why he was given. But Christ makes that clear. Second, Christ is our righteousness and peace. We are told that the coming messianic king will be a king of righteousness. In the context of Psalm 110, he will righteously judge and destroy all his enemies. That does not sound like good news, does it? Here, good news. The holy king has come. He is going to wipe out all sinful, wicked people. Is everybody excited about that? It's not good news unless you're his friends, is it? But here's the question. And aren't we all enemies of God in our fallen state? Yes. Yes, we are. Then how do we become his friends? How do we find peace with this righteous king? Well, we find the answer to that in Psalm 110, don't we? Because Psalm 110 verse 4 tells us he will also be our priest. So as our priest, he will offer a sacrifice to reconcile us to God. We must be made righteous in order to be reconciled to God. We cannot be at peace with God if we're unrighteous. So our great high priest offers an atoning sacrifice to take away our sins. He offers himself. He is the righteous one who lays down his life as an atoning sacrifice for us, the unrighteous. Further, his righteous life is credited to us. We are declared righteous in him. That brings us to the great exchange which brings us peace with God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. Here the apostles are talking about, Paul and his group are talking about being sent out as ambassadors for Christ. They're out representing Christ, making known Christ's message, delivering the good news of the gospel. Now notice what he says. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Now how am I reconciled to God so that I may have peace with him? How does that happen? Because I want to have peace with God, but I am not righteous. So how do I become reconciled to God so I might have peace with him? Look at verse 21. For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, the king of righteousness. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. In other words, he took our sin upon himself. Our sin was imputed to him at the cross. He made him who knew no sin be sin, so that in him, through faith in him, being united to him through faith by the Spirit, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he receives our just punishment at the cross for our sin, and we receive his righteous law-keeping life. That's credit us. At the cross, he receives our sin, and we receive his righteous life. Think of that for a minute. This king of righteousness and king of peace who comes to Jerusalem and in that city as our great high priest offers himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins so that he might bless his people with salvation, with forgiveness of sins, with a declaration of righteousness so that we might be saved, brought back to him. That's what Christ has done for us. That's what Melchizedek was giving us a type of. That God has always been about this, hasn't he? He's always been about it. The gospel is not new news in the sense that God has been declaring this since Genesis 3.15. It's new news in its historical fulfillment in Christ. It's been announced, 
since we fell into sin. God decreed to save us before he even created us, historically fulfilled in Christ. And the author of Hebrews wants you to understand, Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, so much greater than the Levitical priests who came before him. And we'll look more to that next week. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that you decreed before the foundation of the world to send him, to send your son as our king and as our great high priest. We're thankful that you, in every redemptive era, revealed the gospel to your people by way of promise in types and shadows, a type like Melchizedek, that gospel message which was fulfilled in Christ. We're thankful that he has come as the king of righteousness and peace, as our great high priest who has reconciled us to you in himself by the blood of his cross. We give thanks for that. We pray that we would trust him and honor him. In Jesus' name, amen.